referred to Romans chapter 10. It says, starting in verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And uh, the last few weeks I've been talking about saving faith and being careful to explain exactly what that is. Because I think what happens sometimes is we can take all these biblical words and we can kind of combine them into like one giant ball. So we have like, here's the faith, conversion, regeneration, justification, sanctification ball. And it's just kind of all together. But I want to take that ball and unwrap it a little bit so you clearly understand when the Bible talks about some of those key words, some of those important words, exactly what it's talking about. Because our salvation That's what we're talking about. That's a kind of important topic. So why is this important? Each of us needs a faith that is grounded in the Word of God. We need a faith that's grounded in the Word of God. And when the Bible uses certain key words over and over and over and over again, it means something. And the writers are trying to communicate something to us. And guess what? We should want to know what that is. If this is the Word of God, we should want to know what it says to us. So if we don't know what the Word means, we're going to miss what's being said. This is why it's important to be in the Word, to study the Word, to know the Word. Um, Weak doctrine leads to weak faith. Weak doctrine leads to weak faith. I've had people tell me, when I've talked about different matters of the faith, uh, we, just, we just need to believe. We just need to believe. Well, like, believe what? Right? As soon as you make any type of statement, now you're talking about doctrine. You're talking about teaching. So believe what? Believe who? I've had other people say, no creed, but Jesus. But which Jesus? Right? You got the Mormon Jesus, the Jehovah Witness Jesus, I mean you got all these different you got the Islam Jesus, you got all these different Jesus. Which Jesus? Now we're talking about doctrine. We're talking about teaching. Um, by the way, when you say no creed but Jesus, you've just made a creedal statement. Just a little side note there. See you can't have no creed but Jesus because that is your creed. I've had other people say, Well, we don't need a statement of faith. We have the Bible. Well, that's true. We do have the Bible, right? But so did the cults, and look what they've done with the Bible. So what's, tr- what's, what's happening is, I think, today in our culture, 
Um, I would say what we have going on is a gospel of reductionism, a watering down of the gospel. And what happens is, is that if we're not careful, we can try to placate the world. We can try to please the world. And we've reduced um, to just a couple verses or a couple sentences um, faith statements. That's not how it should be. We should be clear. We should be crystal clear. If we're going to be crystal clear about anything, we should be crystal clear about what we believe. We should be crystal clear about the gospel because people's eternal souls are on the line. So we want to be clear about it. The other thing is, we want to be unashamed of it. Jesus says, you acknowledge me before men, what will he do? Come on, guys, this is a little back and forth today, all right? Warm up a little. What is he going to do? Okay, he will acknowledge you before the Father. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And each of us needs to be able to say that. Okay, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Um, one of the things I do if I ever meet people, uh, or when I meet people and they tell me what church they're going to, usually at some point um, later that day I'll just kind of hop online because I'm just kind of curious um, what their church believes. So I usually hop online, go to their church's website, and I'll look, um, I'll, I'll look at what their, their church's statement of faith is. I'm actually surprised um, how many churches really don't have a statement of faith on their website. Like, try it sometime. It's, it's really, a lot of them are missing it. If they do have it, it's, it's usually incomplete. It's usually incomplete. And when I look... I'm always looking for one doctrinal statement in particular. You know what statement I'm looking for for them to address? I'm looking the Trinity. The Trinity. Um, because it's not always there. Even the, if so you find the website, they actually have a doctrinal statement. Um, it is hard from the churches I've checked out, it is hard to find any statement in reference to a clear definition on the doctrine of the Trinity. Okay, usually they might make some reference to Jesus being the Son of God, which is true. They might even reference something about his deity. That's good. Um, but that actually still, you could actually believe some of that, and that actually doesn't necessarily put you into what would be considered orthodox Christianity. So it's very sad when I look at some of these websites. One, it's sad that they just don't even say what they believe. It's kind of like, well, I mean, I'm trying to find out about your church. But others, when they do, it's kind of just kind of this generalization thing. But even if they try to get more specific, it's really not. Um, it's, it's veiled. It's rarely explicitly stated. But here's the thing. Doctrine matters. It matters. Words matter. Defi de definitions matter and truth matters. And when we talk about certain words and their importance and how they relate to the Christian faith, I mean, we're talking about doctrine. And doctrine just means teaching, okay? Now, generally, when you hear the word doctrine, it's referring to, like, religious instruction of some sort. It doesn't necessarily have to mean that, okay? You could talk about the teachings of math, okay? Now, it might be kind of confusing if you called it the doctrine of math, but that's really what it would, you would be talking about, um, the teachings of math. You could talk about the teachings of English and how to write, 
you know, and grammar and different things like that. All of those things are just teachings. How do I write well? Well, you're going to learn certain teachings. How do I add and do subtraction and do multiplication? There's certain teachings that you're going to be instructed on. So when it comes to religious instruction, we're just talking about the doctrine of religious teachings. Everyone, everyone has a doctrinal system they hold to. Every single person. And when I say um, I believe in God, someone can say to me, what do you believe about him? Boom. You're talking about doctrine. You're talking about the teachings, in this case, of God. So everyone has a doctrinal system. The atheist has a doctrinal system. The Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, they all have doctrinal systems. Why? Because everyone has a set of teachings that they hold to. Now, they can be inconsistent teachings. They can be bad teachings. They can be false teachings. But every person has a set of teachings that they hold to. But I want us to have a solid Bible-based doctrine founded on the Word of God. Amen? Now, do any of you guys ever go out in public much? <laughs> I don't know about you, but sometimes when I'm out in public, I'm, sometimes I'm like on a mission, and so, like, you could be my best friend, but I'm like so on a mission, you could like walk right past me, I probably wouldn't even notice you, okay? Because I'm, I can get very task oriented. But sometimes I'm out in public and I'm, I'm walking along or whatever and like someone like brushes against me. Now some people that really bothers a lot. Some people are just like, oh, the person brushed against me. All right. But what kind of bothers me is when someone doesn't just like brush against me, they like almost like bump into me pretty hard. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of that. <laughs> right? The brush, I'm like, ah, no big deal. Right? Like the hard bump, I'm like, hey man, what's going on? Um, what do most of us do, though, when that happens? Some of us want to get into a fight. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> but normally, what do we do? We absorb kind of that, the impact of that, right? And what happens? We stay, most of the time, on our feet, right? But what happens if that's a small kid that gets bumped into? What happens if it's an elderly person that gets bumped into? What's the result? Well, they usually end up on the ground. Why? Because they're not strong enough to withstand the impact. And that's how it is with our spiritual walk. Okay? If we have a strong faith, if we're well-grounded in Scripture, we can withstand the impact that comes against our faith at times. But if not, if our faith is like the little kid, if it's not well-grounded, if we're like the elderly person with little cane, you like that, Jordan? <laughs> We're going to get knocked over. We will get knocked over. Look at Matthew. Hold your place in Romans because we're coming back to it. But look at Matthew 7. Here's what he says, verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, 
and great was the fall of it. Why did the one house fall? Built on a bad foundation. It wasn't well grounded. But I want you to notice something in verse 24. Look what Jesus says. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Hears the words and does them. Okay. So right thinking, we hear the word and then we, we believe it. But right thinking and belief should re- lead to right action. Right thinking should lead to right action. And there's two fancy words. There's orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Okay. Anyone ever been to an orthodontist? What does the orthodontist do? He straightens your teeth, right? He makes your teeth straight. Orthodox, dox is where we get our word doctrine, ortho, straight. So straight teaching or true teaching or right teaching, okay? But orthopraxy is straight or right practice. Straight or right practice, okay? So you have to have both. That's what Jesus is saying here. You hear his truth, the orthodox, and then you put it into practice orthoprax. you got to have both of those. Having just one or the other doesn't do you any good. You can have right teaching, but you don't do anything about it. And you don't act on it. What does the book of James says? What good is that, my brother? What good is that? So someone comes along, you say, they're in need, oh, be warm and be fed. Hope it works out. What good is that? He says, faith without works is dead. So you need need both. You know, there's atheists who do great things for the poor. There's cults who do great things for the needy. So they have the, the practice down. They're doing things that are commendable according to the word but they don't have the orthodoxy. They don't have the right teaching. They got the practice, but not the right teaching. It doesn't do them any good either. Okay, you have to have both. And I think sometimes people imagine there's two extremes. You know, a lot of times when people think about doctrine, they think of it as kind of like cold and stodgy and apathetic, and it's like devoid of any emotion. But I would put before you that if you really, truly are studying the word, if you're really understanding, like, who God is, I mean, that's doctrine, to study who God is, what is his character, what is his nature, that can only but excite you and impassion you and give you a heart for God. And when you start to really see who God is, one of the... The best, I would say it's a devotional book. One of the best devotional books out there is called The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer. He basically just takes scripture and different scriptures and puts it in a form that just resonates with a lot of people's hearts, The Knowledge of the Holy. And people who read that, God has used his writings, A.W. Tozer's writings, to help them better understand this concept of doctrine. Okay? Um... So I don't think there's this false dichotomy between like doctrine and passion. It's really not there. 
okay? Um, if you have a cold, stodgy, apathetic doctrine, then you probably don't have an orthodox doctrine. Because right thinking and right belief will lead to right action. Uh, do any of you know anyone that's ever fallen away from the faith? Yeah, probably all of you. Well, I was thinking to myself the other day, I was like, why do people, why do these people, the people that I know, why have they fallen away? Like, what leads them to deny the faith and walk away from Jesus? I mean, have you ever thought about that for your friends? Like, why? What happened to them? At least with the ones that I know and the ones I was thinking about, um, the cracks in their faith and what led to their eventual falling away had to do with doctrine. It really did. Because they would make statements like, I don't believe a good God would allow this awful thing to happen to me. Or, I don't believe a good God would allow suffering. Or, I don't believe a good God would order the annihilation of a people group. All of that has to do with doctrine. Right thinking. What is the right thinking on those matters? They're related to doctrine and rightly thinking about who God is and also who we are. We need a faith that's grounded in truth. Okay? Here's where the truth is. It's found in the scriptures. And truth means certain things are true. And it means other certain things are not true. Have, have you ever shared with a Mormon or a Jehovah Witness and, and the entire time you're sharing and you're like preaching the gospel to them and you're going over different truths of the scriptures and they're like agreeing with you the whole time. And you're like, what is going on here? This does not make sense. I know they don't believe what I believe. I know they don't. But they're just agreeing with you the whole time. Why? Because they're using the same words but they have different meanings to them. Same words, different meanings. When you say Jesus, their Jesus is different. It's just a fact. Their Jesus is a different Jesus. So you can talk about Jesus all you want. And they'll, oh, I believe in Jesus. Well, they believe in, yeah, they believe in Jesus, but not the Jesus that you're describing, not the Jesus that you believe in. See, words matter. I encourage you, if you're ever talking with anyone of that sort, you've got to start by defining terms. You know, when, when you say Jesus, what do you mean? When you say the Trinity, some Mormons will actually say they believe in the Trinity. Well, it shocked me. Ask them to define it, though. It will not be the definition that you find in the Scriptures. It won't. So look back at Romans, back in verse 9. We've been talking about salvation. Look what it says here. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And I want, I want to talk about three words here in verse 9. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. Today, the Jehovah Witnesses, they can say that. The Mormons, they can say that. Even liberal Christians who don't even believe in the deity of Jesus, they can say that. But during the first 
couple hundred years of Christianity, no one would say that unless they truly trusted Jesus for their salvation. Why is that? Because this was a statement of faith that was not just went along with maybe the teachings of the Romans. It was in direct contradiction to Roman, what we might call Roman theology. Because their phrase was very similar, but completely different. Their phrase was kurios kaisar. Caesar is Lord. Our phrase, and the phrase of the early Christians, was kurios Jesus. Jesus is Lord. If you think about it, who is he writing to here? Who's Paul writing to? He's writing to the Romans in the heart of Rome. He's literally asking them to take a death sentence upon themselves if they want to be saved. He's saying, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus, you want to be saved? This is what it takes. Jesus is Lord. It was a death sentence to them. How did they test the early believers to see if they were believers or not? They lead them before some type of tribunal and, and tell them to say, Curios Caesar, Caesar is Lord. If they did it, they were free to go. If they didn't, they'd be tortured, persecuted, and martyred. It was Jesus' Lord or Caesar's Lord. See, Caesar had essentially gotten to a godlike status at that time in Roman history. And the emperors liked to think pretty highly of themselves. As I tell my students when I teach Latin, um, Julius Caesar thought so highly of himself that he actually added a month to the calendar. We know it as July. And Augustus, who came after him, didn't want to be outdone, so he added a month to the calendar. We know it as August. And here it is, thousands of years later. We are still having those months. True? <clears throat> but the emperor had a godlike status, and to question the godlike status was a death sentence. So to say Jesus is Lord, that's just not some flippant thing that people can walk around saying today. That's what we do sometimes. Back then, you would not say it unless you were prepared to die for that statement. It was a death sentence. Ironically, the early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the pantheon of gods. And the one God they believed in didn't have an idol or image or anything like that. So they were, they were considered atheists. And Roman, the Romans, you don't always see, find this if you, if, unless you read carefully and study carefully, but the Romans were actually tolerant of, of many other religions. It wasn't because Christianity was new on the scene. That is not the case. There's many other different cult-like religions back then that they, that they put up with. It's back to this, you're challenging the emperor himself, and you're saying that Caesar isn't God. You're saying someone else is God. You're saying Jesus is God. That's a problem. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. Over and over again, 
the scriptures use this title of Lord in reference to Jesus over and over. You're having your quiet time. What's the title used? Jesus Christ. Jesus, Lord Jesus, right? Titles are given. Most of the time when the term Lord is used in the New Testament, it's reference to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4. He says, starting in verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So, to the Romans, he said it. Here, Paul, to the Corinthians, Jesus Christ as Lord. Again, asking them to take on a death sentence. Look at Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's that statement again that Paul's making to the Philippians. Jesus Christ is Lord. One day, everyone will acknowledge who Jesus really is. One day, every knee will bow. One of the early martyrs, uh, his name was Polycarp, martyred in 155 A.D., um, but he was born about 80 years before that, such that he actually personally knew the Apostle John. It's like a discipleship of sorts. And so um, you can, there's actually a, a letter or a little booklet written called The, the Martyrdom of Polycarp. You can read it. And <clears throat> here's what it says. When he came near, the proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. On his confessing that he was, the proconsul sought to persuade him to deny Christ, saying, have respect to your old age and other similar things according to their custom. Swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, away with the atheists, meaning away with the Christians. But Polycarp gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen then in the stadium, so he's, he's in the stadium with thousands, maybe tens of thousands, watching, he waves his hand toward them, while with groans he looked up to heaven, and he said, away with the atheists, meaning not the Christians, but the true atheists, right? All the Romans that were not believers, then the proconsul urged him, saying, Swear, and I will set you at liberty. Reproach Christ. Polycarp declared, Eighty and six years I have served him, 
and he never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and my savior? And it goes on a little bit further, and the proconsul is giving him threats to his life. Here's what Polycarp said, because he was threatened with, with being burned to death, and he eventually was. You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour, and after a little is extinguished, but are ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and of eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. And they ended up killing him and setting him on fire. Listen, people are fine with your religion as long as it doesn't encroach on theirs. And people are fine with you believing whatever you want as long as it doesn't affect them or their world. And people are fine with you practicing your faith as long as it doesn't make certain truth claims, like Jesus is the only way, or Christianity is true and all religions are false. Once you've done that, you've attacked the secular god of inclusivism and the whole idea of everyone get along and the concept that all views are equal. Listen, once you say Jesus is God, you've literally ruled out every other religion because that is not their view of Jesus. And once you say Jesus is God, you validate every word of Jesus and every word of the Old Testament and every word of the New Testament. And just like that, by definition, no other religion can be true. But, but what happens to us when we talk about these truths? We get, we, get, we get distracted with things. We get distracted with the pleasures of the world. Entertainment can be good. It can be healthy until it becomes a distraction. And some people self-medicate with alcohol. Some people self-medicate with drugs. And some people self-medicate with Netflix. People self-medicate. They use things to distract themselves because they don't want to deal sometimes with hurts in their life, with pain in their life. Sometimes they're more stuck on themselves. They're more caught up with their own lives. They don't want to minister to others. It's too painful for some of the things that they've gone through. And Satan is more than happy to use distractions of this world where he doesn't really even have to get involved. There's so much distractions. Sometimes he can just go on cruise control in your life because you're already distracted so much. You guys ever heard of, um, of something called Twitch? It's not like you got a little thing going on. Okay. Twitch is a video, it's a live streaming platform. Okay. So if you do video games, <clears throat> you can go and live stream the game that you're playing so other people can watch it. Which I don't know about you, but I did grow up with video games, but I did not like watching other play people play video games. I'd rather be playing the video game. Okay, <clears throat> But apparently that's a thing, and it's a big thing. And people like watching other people play video games. So this, web, this website, Twitch, has roughly 2.2 million broadcasters. You go on there, 2.2 million different people streaming their video games from their console onto this website. And so far they have produced over 456,000 years of game footage. 456,000 years of game footage. Okay, that's a dizzying figure. 
fed by parents who encourage their children's hopeless dreams of never leaving the sofa when they grow up, okay? <clears throat> People are distracted. When I spoke, I spoke at the youth group the other night, and I mentioned the name of one of the top, top I don't know if he's considered a gamer or a streamer on this site, right? They, they couldn't believe I'd ever heard of this guy. That's because I got teenagers. <laughs> but we are in the world, but not of the world. And there's many good things out there that if we're not careful, they can distract us. There's, there's the option of the good and the better. There's the option of the good and the better and the best. And each of our time is limited. We have a limited amount of time. And we need to choose the best at every turn possible. We need to choose the best. The question for us to ask in these situations, is this the best? Now, I'm not against entertainment, all right? I watched part of a movie last night, kind of unwind from the day. But distractions can keep us from the kingdom. Distractions can keep us from pursuing the Lord. So we need to be careful. Jesus is Lord. Amen? Amen. Is he your Lord? Is he really your Lord? Look at, look at Matthew 7. We were there just a moment ago. Jesus says this in verse 21. It's part of the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do mighty, many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I consider these verses here some of the scariest verses in Scripture. And it should be a clarion call to each of us to wake up and make sure that these don't apply to us. Because we can confess all we want, or maybe profess, Jesus is Lord. We can do external action. God wants an inner change in the heart. And when we talk, everything I've been talking about today, talking about putting your trust in Jesus, the true Jesus, the one who came from the Father and lived the perfect life, the one who was put to death by evil men, the one who, while he was on the cross, took your sins upon him, the one who rose from the grave three days later, the one who had victory over death, the one who says, if you trust in me, I will give you my righteousness. If you trust in me, I will forgive you my sins. That's the Jesus that we're talking about. And his offer of salvation through God the Father is offered to each person freely. Each person has that ability. They have a choice to make. So I encourage you, if you've not really made that decision, choose today. 
Think about what Joshua said. Choose today whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. What about you? Choose today whom you're going to serve. Choose today who you're going to trust. Choose. And choose Jesus. Jesus says today is the day of salvation. And he wants some of you who aren't saved to get saved today. He wants you to trust in him. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in your possessions. And trust in him. In one sense, it's a very simple thing to do. In one sense, it's very hard. Because the natural flesh, the natural kicks against having to trust really in anything or anyone else. You want to trust in yourself. You've got to push that aside and put your trust in someone who can actually help you out of your dire situation, of the path that you're on to hell. Trust in him, and he will give you eternal life. Trust in him. Let's pray.